Sandy from ATV, and here now a story from Space Drumroll signals another Fanderson podcast. It's Roz Connors back with you once again. The ident you heard right at the beginning, of course, was that for ATV, an introduction for one of their Space 1999 repeats back in June 1977. The reason I chose that to start today is that uh, there was a lot of merchandise around at the time. I used to love collecting these novels and some of the poster magazines and the other paraphernalia that was coming out on Space 1999, but I did wonder what was being released on other shores. I'm going to get the lowdown on merchandise stateside when I link up with two experts the other side of the Atlantic. Also dropping by later on is actor Vicky Michelle, who will talk about repeat fees for appearing in Space 1999. We're linking up with two people. One we've met before, David Hirsch, who's the former co-editor of Starlog magazine, and Gordon Moriguchi, who's a collector and fan of merchandise. That's our topic on the podcast today. David, welcome back. It's lovely to have you back on again. Well, lovely to be back. And Gordon, first time here. Honour to be here. Thank you. Merchandise, a big thing. In the Jerry Anderson world, obviously, mm -hmm. spin-off merchandise is something that um, helps carry the series along, helps with its popularity. And I suppose we want to talk about how it comes about, how companies perhaps decide what's the best uh, items to release to viewers and uh, that which might sell in the shop. And some of the items that we've perhaps ourselves collected over the years. We've also got to talk about the quality of some of this merchandise. David? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think at the time ITC was too worried about the quality of the merchandise. I think they wanted the merchandise out there because it was another selling point for the show. Because the more people that licensed the product, the more popular the show appeared to be. And in the case of Space, they, they launched the show with quite a large uh, arsenal of uh, licensed merchandise. It was all handled, believe it or not, through Hanna-Barbera in the United States. The company that made, you know, the cartoons, cartoons Stones, yes. Yogi, Yogi Bear, had their own licensing division, quite the same as Century 21 had their own licensing department with Keith Shackleton. So um, anything stateside came through Hanna-Barbera, which is why there were a couple of toys that actually had a Hanna-Barbera copyright instead of ATV on them. Really? Yeah. Yeah, a couple of the, um, was that, what was it, the Roadsters toys, Gordon? Yeah, the little tiny eagle Roadsters, uh, the uh, the moon buggy, the little uh, Kaldorian spaceship die right. yeah. yeah, those those were all uh, Hanna-Barbera, uh, yeah. actually imprinted on the metal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Itself. 
Um, Prior to Space 1999, did you have very much? Because there seems to be a lot of things in the UK, Thunderbird toys, Stingray toys that people have collected over the years. Well, no no question you had much more in the UK and definitely infinitely more in Japan. With the Anderson shows, it, it depended on the show. Supercar, there was quite a bit of merchandising. We had the Remco switch and go supercar that you put the little discs in and it ran around the floor in different patterns. That got reissued as the Land of the Giants car, of all things. Oh. Not that they ever had a they car They didn't have the a car, did they? I was going to say. No, there was a, <laughs> a lot of the Land of the Giants toys had nothing to do with the show. With Supercar, we had that. We had one issue of a comic book, a record, the, the release of the um, Flight of Fancy record album here. And I think a couple of other minor things. Fireball had a bigger merchandise range because that was networked here. So we had that really now very desirable fundamental uh, multiple toys space city playset which goes for thousands of dollars on ebay and there were no no supercar had four comics fireball had one all through gold key uh and then stingray was very very simple some puzzles a coloring book that was about it thunderbirds the lincoln snap together kits were available here I know some of the Japanese models did get imported at one point, and there were coloring books, puzzles. Nothing on Captain Scarlet other than the dinky imports, as I explained. Yeah. They, uh, they came through F.E.O. Schwartz, the high-end toy store. So I was able to acquire them. And UFO, the only licensing here were the two paperback books. That was it. Guys, one of the few things I had when I was younger was the UFO annual. I, I like the printed media. I like reading stories and books. And um, the UFO annual was a present from my mother. She knew I loved the series. But there wasn't much else around with UFO. There was a couple of paperback books that I remember. And I do recall a, a school friend having them in the class. A lad had them in, in school. But when I tried to get them in the bookshop, same bookshop, I could never find them. I think UFO kind of suffered from the fact that they didn't know whether it was a kid's show or an adult show. Mm. So I don't, I think that's why there wasn't as much toy licensing as all the others. It was beyond, interceptors and things, beyond, wasn't there? Yeah, beyond Dinky, since they had uh, a successful career with uh, all of Jerry's shows. And bless them, they were the only ones who really did a toy yes. of Straker's car, which has always been a thorn in my side because I love the cars. I thought, why isn't there a really nice, slick, you know, I mean, even Product Enterprise. Why didn't you guys do the car, for God's sake? Well, do you know what I thought that was really strange? Uh, the, the show about UFOs, they had the Interceptor, they had the car, Straker's car, the mobile, but they didn't actually have the UFO itself. And to me, that was the most interesting craft in the whole series. Gordon, yeah. Gordon is nodding here. Yeah, I, I think that goes back to yeah. why when Lost in Space was... Uh, out aurora never released a kit of the jupiter tube because they thought well it's a flying saucer it's a boring kit <laughs> but i mean the ufo is not a boring kit there's a lot of fun parts with it well i found it mesmerizing gordon yeah, gordon's yeah. nodding yeah oh yeah yeah i, yeah. I agree <laughs> I, I mean the the those beautiful konami models i mean i love the fact that you could hold the ufo and just spin it and just stare <laughs> at it you know i was like the product enterprise UFO doesn't do anything. Why, yeah. why can't you make it spin, for goodness sake? There was a lot of third-party uh, models put out. Uh, yeah, the Shed one. Really I think nice. The first one, yeah. But, yeah. of course, this is a lot later on, isn't it, rather than oh, when the series later, was actually... Uh, 
I'm not sure with the Japanese because the Japanese did do a lot of kits. Although their UFO was a spinning top because oh, right. it came with a like a a plastic cone shaped uh, attachment at the bottom that you you had to cut off if you didn't want it. I had one of those and it was made was to spin it, you know, like a like a top on your table. I think I, I only made the interceptor and maybe the sky one. If I'm not could mistaken. have been it could have been Bandai because there was a, a plastic uh, official plastic kit out of Japan of the UFO. Yes, yes, yeah. might have been Bandai. Might have been Bandai because it floated between the two companies anyway. So with Space 1999, we got a lot more merchandise. So what why right. what what happened there that changed everything? That suddenly we had a lot of merchandise with these this new show that we hadn't had with the older ones. I think a lot of it had to do with how ITC was promoting the show. I mean, they really went all out with this show. Uh, you know, everyone knows about the the, the that large dis, uh, sales brochure they did for the conventions they sent out the tv stations it was huge i mean when the show was reviewed in the trade papers they would mention the fact that yeah we got this in before the show shows the size and the expense of the show mm. uh, and they they definitely went off the deep end with uh getting with uh, some of the bigger companies like mattel a little bit of well not not so much kenner hasbro but um because they, they did put out a couple of items but more like ahi uh the azrak hamway uh folks the the rack toys Larami that you would see in the grocery store or whatever, but I mean, a huge line, a huge line of, of that stuff yeah. across the board, as well as Vanity Fair and um, with the, the, the wonderful megaphone. I don't know if you remember that. Right, <laughs> the megaphone, yes. So we well, had some very good course, stuff, Mickey. but we had some very poor stuff as well along yeah, with Yeah, well, they would, let, they would let people buy the license to the name and put out whatever product they wanted. It didn't exactly have to be something from the show. But it was it was part of their publicity that they had all these licenses sold. So initially, they did the um, they relicensed the Orbit paperback novels, which the first two came out in September when the show premiered. And then Charlton Comics did a bi-monthly comic book and a bi-monthly black and white comic magazine, fans yeah. magazine, and that started in November of that year. So that was the first two bits of merchandise that actually hit regular stores and then as we went into the following year and the show got renewed a lot more major companies jumped in rca licensed the soundtrack album mattel did the big eagle playset, which was you know a, a phenomenal product compared to all the stuff that was already available and of course the hobby kits Yes, my, my cousin had the large eagle, so I did actually yeah. get to see it. It had little figures in it, and I think yes. parts of it yes. detached, and there was quite a detailed interior section as well. So it was a very good play item for youngsters. Yeah, it was definitely play value. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple of other. There was a uh, sort of Moonbase Alpha vinyl play set with yes. uh, the dolls and everything. So a lot of that came out in 76 as the show started gaining momentum. And uh, the major companies saw value in licensing the product. Something I observed with Space 1999, we, we were into a new series. We had Maya join. We had Victor Bergman disappear in this uh, second season. A lot of the merchandise that was coming out around that time was still based on the first season, I noticed. Yes, yes, because, uh, you know, it's the, it's the lead time required to produce a lot of product. Um, mm. Bit of a lag though there with, with- There's always a lag. I mean, especially with things like hobby kits, you almost never see the hobby kit show up 
around the time of release. It always seems to follow anywhere from six months to a year later because of the time and expense it takes to master and mold something like that. Uh, there's a few yeah. items out there for year two, though. You had yeah. the Panini stamp book, and oh yeah, there was a gold, yeah, yeah. Uh, golden print, or whatever. Um, year two book, kind of a comic book slash book, but but yeah, you there wasn't a whole lot of year two yeah. stuff. Yeah, to I mean, Charl Charlton wrapped up their run with only one issue of each each of their more, uh, yeah. publishing, with sort of a Maya story, and I, I think that came out months after the episode because they probably didn't have too much information at the time. But uh, here it, it kind of petered out by the time year two came. Yeah. Here in the UK, we had a children's magazine, TV Times, Junior TV Times, they called it, called Look In. I, I don't know if you guys have ever managed to get hold of some yeah, of the British I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. Look In magazines. Yes. They had the license to cover Space 1999 in the magazine and um, they kept pace with what was going on with the changes between the two seasons yeah. and they produced yeah, the some yes they produced some quite yeah. nice yeah. artwork with the comic strips they had competitions one of the great competitions in looking was a chance to go to the studios to meet Martin Landau and the cast which I didn't win that's lucky <laughs> kids right there. Was the pity. Yeah. But um, I'd love to know who it was who won and uh, what they thought of their day there because I don't yeah. think um, we've ever seen um, the person or met the person who, who was treated to a day no, at It's kind of odd that they didn't promote that. They only promoted the contest. Yes, it's fantastic. Yeah. I think there were some pictures in looking afterwards, but it fades from memory very quickly, yeah. especially if you're not the winner. Right, right. <laughs> and you know, of course, we had the dinkies here early in the run since they were already available in England and they were just imported to the specialty stores. The odd thing is a lot of the um, products Gord was mentioning, the inexpensive stuff, was all copied down from the dinky. It was right. that was actually yeah. sort of like the master because if even if you look at the um, the MPC Moonbase Alpha kit. If you look at the little, those little, you know, thumb, uh, fingernail size eagles, they're actually the dinky eagle. They have all the details, right. including the little mold blisters. Incredible. Yeah, every, I, th I think every, every uh, copied eagle, except for the Fundamentals kit, maybe yeah. the big, big Mattel eagle, have been copied from the dinky yeah. to, to include some discoloration, right? The green or made it making it blue or whatever you just right there was that water pistol and uh all the little yes. wheeled toys that were all essentially copies of the dinkies and and those dreaded wheels everybody oh they, my gosh everybody they loved wheels have... well all the all wheels the, uh, i think well, the, the kids I... want to turn them into a matchbox right card, <laughs> I mean, I remember the IMA model kits all had wheels. Yes, they did. The, uh, those Lincoln Thunderbirds. I hated the fact that they had wheels on them. Um, didn't bother me much with Thunderbird 2 and 4 because we knew they, they did rolled a bit, but Thunderbird 3 with wheels was really ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> My reading continued with uh, Season 2 Space. Um, yeah. They did release the paperback novels here in the UK. Um, Same guys, here, yeah. And... But we didn't yeah, they ended get up with a sixth volume here in the states versus uh, just right. five. I yeah, was going to say we only had five in the UK, and it took me absolute yeah. years and years to get yeah. that very last one, which was a US import. It was called well, "The Edge of the Infinite." Yes, but right. you had the same problem with year one, 
you didn't get Phoenix of Megaron, the 10th novel, no. but you got Earthfall, Earthfall which yeah. was the reimagining by E.C. Tubb, where he, he starts off with redoing Breakaway and then he actually wraps up the series. What's the story behind that then, David? Why did you get certain books and us get other books? I, I don't know. I don't know because I've never been able to find out why each series also lost an episode. Yes, because Earthbound that, um, was never novelized in the first series and the Tabor was never novelized in the yeah. second series. That's true, isn't it? Yes, you're absolutely right. But I think I finally got to read The Edge of the Infinite. I think it was around 2007 when I got it. So I'm reading reading this book like 30 years, nearly 40 years after yeah, I read all the yeah. other ones. And it certainly took me back in time a bit. With The, the right. style of writing I did enjoy, though, from right. Michael Butterworth. Right. Now you have the Powis Media books, which have been reissued where they've sort of smoothed over all the uh, continuity errors between the series and and the and the original scripts plus the fact that they've tied them in with their original novels now these novels were they based on the original draft scripts as well because yes, there were some yes. lots of subtle differences weren't there in yes, the novels yes that yeah a lot of them were based on the original drafts especially the michael butterworth ones because his uh, his metamorph adaption has all the alternate character names because originally Alan Carter wasn't coming back to the show and I see I think his his adaption of Catacombs of the Moon was very different because I that always stuck out that episode always stuck out of my mind because I had been I had been given a plot synopsis of that episode with a couple of others while I was doing my Alpha Tech notebook which yes we started off in in 77 towards the end of the show's original broadcast because here in the states the latter half of the second season didn't actually get broadcast until the summer because of the lag in producing and to do the episode guide itc sent me a lot of line synopses which were of the original draft scripts and catacombs of the moon sounded so fascinating it was like a year one episode with these mm. they described dolly-esque landscapes in the in Osgood's um, fantasies. And then you see the final episode with a four poster bed and the moon cutouts and flame sticks. And I'm like going, what? This is Doctor Who. <laughs> you know, this is, this is uh, you know, a BBC budget. It, 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 it was so disappointing. Well, that's Ryan probably Johnson's it, isn't off. it? That's yeah. probably it, that they just, the budget for something envisioned in those early scripts just wasn't Well, it, it's affordable. A, it was the second season, it was a constant fight between lack of money and especially lack of time. It, it, sometimes it wasn't a case of money, it was time. I mean, you look at some of the storyboards Brian Johnson had, and they were never able to, uh, to visualize stuff in the second series the way they could in the first, because they had no time to experiment and say, oh, well, this shot didn't work. Let's go back and redo it. I understand Terence Feely was very unhappy with uh, what transpired from his script with the Bringers of Wonder because I do believe yeah. the the what we saw was like blobs, wasn't it? The aliens, and yeah. I think I think in his script he had them as more like ghosts. There were a lot of things in the original script. I, I mean, I do remember an early discussion I had with Jerry and. Anderson, we were talking about the second season and he actually was on went on holiday during the filming of bringers of wonder and he he remembered vividly telling freddie freiberger during a rewrite session that 
they couldn't have a moon buggy battle on the lunar surface because they only had one moon buggy. Oh, they did it, though, didn't they? And they did it in several episodes, and it got kind of tedious, didn't it? Especially where the moon buggy started to hit the rocks. The rocks used to slide along the floor. Well, yeah, but you couldn't show, like, you know, three, four <laughs> moon buggies running around in the same shot yeah. without doing a complicated visual effect. And they also didn't have... Uh, miniatures of the same scale to do it and no time to actually build more miniatures. Mm. You know, Dave, probably. it's probably a good thing that they didn't do three or four moon buggies anyway. They'd be made fun of uh, the banana splits. Or right, right. <laughs> yeah, but the moon, buggy, the moon buggies never uh, were, were probably one of the more unconvincing shots in a lot of episodes. Mm. It was just something about the scale and the fact that the figures didn't move that a lot of times uh, it was grateful that they were brief shots. It was just not one of the better miniature effects. Just I think simply because of the scale and the design of it, it just never mm -hmm. looked right on screen compared to everything else. Talk about your um, technical notebook. Amazing, mm -hmm. amazing book. Thank you, thank you. Agreed. Yeah. I will praise it yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. We had to do we had to do that in like three months, from start to finish. It was because they, uh, Norman and Carrie, the publishers of Starlog decided, okay, we're spending all this money on a license. We have to get this out by Christmas. And then my uh, co-writer, Jeff Mandel, who was doing the, um, the artwork, Jeff was leaving for college. So we had to get that out. Certain things weren't done. I had to turn over to uh, stuff over to my friend Dave McConnell to finish up, polish up some of the work. And uh, also Anthony Fredrickson, who did the costume art, he was leaving for college. Well, I'll tell you what, what the, the, it felt like three months waiting for that book to come in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> but when it did, oh my gosh, it was... And, and we're still waiting for the damn updates. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen... Yeah, still, yeah, what's up with that, David? <laughs> it was, I had them ready to go and they kept pushing me off. I mean, we had, uh, we were going to use blueprints by Stephen Corbett, who was a friend of Martin Bowers, and he um, did a lot of beautiful scale drawings of Martin's models. We actually got the Altaris one published in Starlog. And uh, Jeff Mandel did a hawk, which ended up in one of the convention booklets, uh, just simply to make use of it. Well, you, also, you, you also used it in one of your space reports as well, right? Yeah, the hawk was in the space report. Oh, and Gwent, no, it was Gwent that was used in the convention book. That's right. Went that's one. right. Yeah. 1982. Yeah. 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 Jeff's Hawk was used in the convention in the convention because it technically was owned by Star Wars. Fabulous. Gentlemen, I got to say that um, this is a point where I got to say it was so difficult being here in the UK. Some of the items released in the US only were very, very difficult to get hold of. Here. Was, one of those items being your technical notebook. That and the soundtrack album, I'm told. Yes, that too. In yeah. fact, I only picked up that album when I made a trip across the Atlantic, yeah, went to New yeah. York City and bought it, I think, for $2.50 in a bargain basement. <laughs> well, the funny thing about that soundtrack album is that uh, they made a uh, Canadian printing. And the weirdest thing is they made the same printing for the Spanish market in Spain, uh, as well as uh, Turkey, of all places. There was a Turkish RCA print. Now, the Spanish version was a little different, but it was the same same soundtrack, essentially. Right. The Spanish one had the the, 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 the bomber, bomber from Last Enemy on the cover. Yes, yeah. And I think it was you who told me that you heard the Spanish one had better audio quality? Yes, yes. Uh, slightly yeah. better. It was really odd. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, the one thing to mention about the soundtrack, for those who don't know it, 
Barry had nothing to do with it. He had been uh, told that there was going to be a, a soundtrack licensed and nobody said a word to him after that. And what ended up happening was they just sent the multitracks to RCA and they mixed it themselves. And because- Got to throw some disco tunes on it too. Right, well, you got to remember <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the time, the music, musicians union charged by, I think it was in 15 minute sessions for music reuse. So since they were dealing with music from several episodes, the way they were able to keep the budget down was they used less than half an hour's worth of music, cut it so it played longer, which in some cases wasn't so bad from an from a album standpoint. It actually plays very well. And then they filled it out with two disco pieces, which, which to Barry's chagrin were credited to him on the RCA release. And they actually became big hits in discos at the time because RCA did release 12 inch singles of them under, did. under the album title, but yeah. they all said Barry's name instead of the original artist. It wasn't until Spanish pressing that the artist's names came out. I've got to say here about uh, those two disco tracks, they made their way into the next ITVC series that was made Return of the Saint. Yes, yes, I remember that hearing yeah. them popping up there. So, yes, the RCA album, very difficult to get hold of in the UK here. When I finally got it, oh, gosh, the, the artwork, the cover, open it out. The it's, cover was the, the it best. It was lovely. And, and I'm, and I'm putting, putting this challenge out now so that anyone who's a Fanderson member hears this should write to Fanderson and see if we can get Tim Mallett to do it. You guys should reissue He's the album. He's listening. He's listening. You should li reissue this album in its format. I mean, we know Barry has the tracks without the crossfade. So we could always put that on as bonus stuff and yeah. release it in a cardboard CD sleeve that mimics the actual album with the gatefold. Yes. There's your idea for the 50th anniversary coming up. There you go. And they could do it exactly the way they did FAB, do it as an LP pressing and yes. a seat mini CD pressing. Fanderson's yeah, just done a that. UFO annual. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, just like the original one. And I think that's yeah. proving a very yeah. popular yeah. sales item at yeah. the moment. People are and, um, yeah. flooding the club yes. with orders yes. now. So, so take yes. up the challenge, Tim. Come on. <laughs> I know you want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Another item um, that was difficult for me to get here in the UK. I've ha I'll hold it up to the screen. And yes. uh, this is a book that I really, really wanted because I wanted information on behind the scenes of my favourite show, Space 1999. I couldn't get it. I know our listener can't see it uh, holding up to the camera. This is The Making of Space 1999 by Tim Heald. In fact, I was actually ripped off trying to purchase it here on in the UK by some kind of scam. And then it was only thanks to um, another company that I actually got my copy. But so, so difficult to get some of these items here in the UK in, in the place where this, the series is made. It, 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 it was kind of an odd thing with, with space. It was like a role reversal where so it, there were more material available in the States than in England where the show was made. So I know there were a lot of, lot of rare pieces. And I think at the time the book came out, the series popularity was not as, um, as big. And I, and I know a lot of people still looking for the book here who still missed out on it the first time. Gosh, that's interesting, isn't it? We moved from the 70s into the early 80s, and I know that, Gordon, you've got a story to tell how you got into Jerry Anderson. Well, I, well, to be honest with you, I got into the show September of 75 when Mom 
when my mom uh, opened up the TV guide and said, hey, there's this really cool show mm-hmm. coming on uh, Saturday night at 10 o'clock. You want to check it out? And it just blew me away ever since. No, <laughs> no pun intended. But um, uh, with with uh, what David had worked yeah. on. The, I'm the angling to talk about theater. the Super Space Theater. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the 80s, <laughs> the, 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 the Destination Moonbase Alpha or even our USA versions of of the release of Alien Attack and um, A Journey Through the Black Sun VHSs, I ended up renting two VHS players trying to copy and make my own copy of the... <laughs> shame, shame. Were you trying to edit out Sybil Danning? <laughs> yes, yes, oh my gosh. And the funny thing is, I actually ran into Sybil Danning over at uh, Wonderfest, uh, I want to say either last year or the year before, uh, got her autograph on one of those silly uh oversized boxes we'll just leave it at that uh of of the uh of, of the usa re- release of, of alien attack mm. and it's just it, <laughs> it was it was quite embarrassing but it was our only way to see those particular episodes throughout the entire 80s and then of course we also had an, a really cool um thing that came out after now I, I i it's not fair to compare it to the technical notebook but the japanese guidebook which has over 1,500 photographs in this little 78-page book, uh, was, was, was an amazing resource of, of stuff that carried us through the 80s until we started seeing un- Oh, though the Japanese had, had some fabulous books, the, the Big Town Mook with a lot of the color Town stuff. Mook, it was yeah. a little black and white paperback size one. And, of course, uh, everyone remembers the, uh, the big pink hardcover book. Yeah. Oh, the, well, the so the series. pink book didn't come out until 93. Yeah. Uh, and that had a lot of Phil Ray's collection in there, I believe. Right, yeah, and some of the, some of the photos that came from Martin Bauer and I. Were but in the there. town mook—that's that's the one that Jerry Anderson actually uh, uh, promoted as. Hey, you know, it's great to be here in Japan. You know, I'm glad you guys really love it. There's like right, a little right, a little right, because there was so little in mm-hmm. England and the United States of his product. That's why we did the SST movies to try and promote him, so he could get five star five and these other projects off the ground oh i remember the five star five yeah. announcements yeah. Yeah. yeah i was really looking forward to that so and then I. of course um, <laughs> i was supposed to work on it <laughs> and then and then the star star cruiser one yeah. i believe is another, another yeah 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 i mean i got i was lucky to actually write a sort of background story for u.s airfix when they released it here it was right. independent of what jerry had come up with which they used in the look in magazine but he approved it he said, "Go yeah. ahead. Let's let's see if we can try another avenue to promote the series." And but I, I got to tell you, the the space either. report really really got us through a, a very good portion of the the late seventies all the way up until uh, nineteen eighty eighty one time frame. Thank and, you. And a huge huge thanks on behalf of the fans, uh, David, to uh, you know just keep that keep that battle rhythm going. And uh, you know, once we got into the '90s, there was a little bit of a resurge, and then of course the 2000s. But the the resurge really didn't hit huge until about the 2013-2014 timeframe. Well, it's all home home video because all all we had here on home video of the show were the four four episodes that J2 Communications. J2 Communications, right, right, right. right. So I I actually bought a laser disc just to get every one of the- Right, that was the only way to get the the series. Right, was the laser discs, yeah. Why they made that decision, I don't know. And and, uh, Roz, the the, the funny thing is those those silly laser discs were made in England, but only sold in the States. Yes, I heard that. And then I also heard something about a warehouse fire where a lot of it got destroyed. 
I wouldn't be surprised because volume I, one is very rare. Yeah, I think that's why. I think because I think it was volume one was the one in the warehouse fire. But um, I, I think it was simply because Image Entertainment was really pushing a lot of product on Laserdisc at the time, trying to get the format off the ground. And uh, yeah. there was a lot of stuff that was only available on Laserdisc at mm, the time, yes. a lot of rare stuff. Here's a question for you guys. How did Terrahawks fare in the U US when Jerry really made his comeback? We know it was it, a smaller scale show. Yeah, a lot of people it, it was like an early morning show here because uh, a lot of shows like would run like on, on early Sunday morning uh, for kids. Um, Terror Hawks, there was Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, which was actually a big budget show in comparison. Uh, and it still got buried on like eight o'clock Sunday morning. Mm. Here um, in the UK, we did have some merchandise. We had an annual, if I remember correctly, we had the set of Viewmaster slides for Terra right. Hawks, yeah. and Bandai did a range of models. Yeah, well, no, but there was a lot of Bandai toys. That was it. But it all, I think it was Japan. It was a bigger hit than I think any place else, or at least as far as licensing. Can't imagine. Um, there were some records as well, some vinyl records of some of the right. music. Yeah, in the UK, all you had was you had the uh, the twelve inch single with the um, uh, the theme, the extended okay. theme, and this this like um, uh, medley with music and vocals. And then there was the uh, Kate uh, Moya Kestrel, Griffiths, wasn't Kate it? Kestrel yes. single, and that was it. And I was surprised that only two Kate Kestrel songs ever got released. I yes. don't know what happened between her and. Uh, Jerry and Christopher Burr that uh, caused them not to release a Kate Kestrel album. I thought that was their ultimate goal. Mm. There was uh, there were some nice songs in that show. Guys, as we're on this topic of um, vinyl records, what's the story behind um, Power Records Space 1999 episodes? Oh, I think at the time they were just doing cheap re-recordings <laughs> re of uh, shows. Just for, I mean, they were those albums were worth collecting simply for the covers, especially yes. the year two cover. The comic books, though, the book and record sets were uh, the artwork was very stellar right, uh, right. compared to the, you know, what Charlton put out. Right. The audio is just the stuff that they were kind of really lackluster on. And yeah. the interesting thing, too, about them was in, I think it was the second disc, there was a song called It Played So Softly on the Ears, a story. Oh, yes. And they actually used the force a of piece life, of tracking music that was also used in Force of Life, which I thought was I don't know if they actually knew that show that piece of music was used in the show or not, but that was kind of cool. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. But that was about the only thing that was cool about those records. The actors, yeah. it was very cliched. It was very it was well, rushed, kids, wasn't so. it? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it, it uh, sadly, I mean, you think of all the children's records that were adapted from the episodes. The Supercar, I have a very fond memory of an Astro Boy album that was done from an episode that I used to love to listen to over and over again. I mean, I think that's where my love of film music came from listening to a lot of the Supercar album and that one. And you'd hear all the background music and the, that would help you remember episodes that you were, that you were fondly uh, remembering, but you, know, you couldn't see because there was no home video. You had to wait for them to rerun it, if ever. Ah, now, as you've mentioned that, in our last podcast, we've mentioned 8mm home movie market. Here in the UK, it seemed to be quite big with releases of Fireball XL5, Supercar, Stingray, yeah. Thunderbirds. Um, We've never had, we never had the Anderson shows on home movie here, millimeter here. There were, there was a home movie market, especially a lot of major movies cut down to bite size. I mean, I remember... 
there were like three on the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea movie that actually came with records so that you had some kind of sound if you were clever enough to cue it all up. And I think I had one God, I think I had one Godzilla movie that after watching it several dozen times, I took out magic markers and started trying to colorize it frame by frame. <laughs> I mean, that the was... only thing that we the only thing that we have in the States here is our own little homemade uh, audio cassettes telling our family right. members to shut up. Right, so right, right. Record our own episodes. Oh, yeah. well, I'm guilty <laughs> of doing that as well. I just wanted to capture yeah. something of Space 1999 and several of the other shows. That yeah, I did on. that. I did that as far back as Captain Scarlet using uh, a home recorder to record the episodes. Desperation. But, uh, we did have the Viewmasters, of course. Yes. I mean, we had the Supercar Viewmaster all the way back to that. Never had the Thunderbirds, but UFO and Space, of course, were released yeah. here. So what do we all think of the current merchandise, in particular DVD and Blu-ray? Well, I mean, the DVDs and Blu-rays are great. The, um, the Product Enterprise and now the 1612 releases you know, th these models are models that we only dreamed of as something, you know, really accurate. I mean, certainly 1612's uh, painting is much better than uh, Product Enterprise, which were a little bit sort of in the dinky range as being slightly off. I never got over the baby blue back end of the supercar. That was really <laughs> bizarre. Who chose that? Chose that. <laughs> I mean, I can understand the white. Everyone makes the same mistake on supercar. They paint it white instead of gray. Which it, which it really was, because you could see that in the color photos, but some of the toys had the white. With regards to the Blu-rays, though, uh, we have been very blessed with Space 1999. Yeah. You know, with, with originally the VHS, the Laserdisc, UK had their own, um, you yeah. all had your own uh, single episode uh, VHS. Then we fast forward into the DVD market, uh, and then ultimately um, re-release of the DVD, re-release again, A&E did it again, and then, of course... Uh, network did the uh, remasters of the uh, DVD, and then ultimately um, in in twenty was it twenty eighteen twenty yes twenty eighteen we had Shelf Factory finally for the American market released both seasons utilizing the network masters and I haven't Gordon I haven't seen them but I've heard that the that the shot ones aren't as good as the network masters. I from what I was reading uh, they they used them. Oh okay yeah. Yeah, uh, basically just like A and E did for the the, the network masters for you. Right. Well, well, A and E ported over the entire first series yep. set because it's exactly the same as the DVD set that I have for network. Uh, all the bonus features, all the uh, extra audio tracks, everything. But uh, the only okay. downside to the Shout Factory was that that silly snow globe for promotional oh, purposes. God. That was just hideous. Uh, but the DVD set itself and the booklets that came along with it, really great set to order uh, if you're inclined. Uh, Gordon, you were saying something about photo guidebooks as well. So, yeah, I, when I was growing up, uh, you know, Starlog was a huge influence for me. I loved the magazine, started with issue number four before I even knew about it with Nick Tate. And then uh, the, the when, when I saw the first photo guidebook, Spaceships, uh, and then, of course, Aliens and then Fantastic Worlds. Oh, I've got some of these. That, yes. the, all of those yeah. particular books were just absolutely amazing. Great resource and uh, had to have them all. Yeah. <laughs> so they were it fun. was great to see them in bookstores. Who put uh, those together, David? Order. Who put those together? The, uh, I worked on a lot of them, especially uh, the latter half of them. Orig originally started off with um, Howard Zimmerman and Dave Houston, who were the original editors of Starlog, did a lot of the early books up to um, Aliens. Aliens, I think, was the first one I worked on. 
and then I worked on the uh, uh, the second spaceships volume, the bigger one. But then I, I basically ran the show after that with everyone's help. I mean, research was always an issue pre-internet. Oh yeah, and, and we did yeah, a lot of really them. good toys edition. You had a really good yeah. We had that was Stephen Sansweet, who was the big Star Wars collector, did the toy mm. book. I tell uh, you what was particularly of interest to me, guys, was the the episode guides. There were no episode guides back then, were they? Other yeah. than what what Starlog was producing, and it was through one of those TV episode guidebooks I found out that there was an episode of the Fantastic Journey series that hadn't been broadcast here in the UK. It had been banned too, yeah, or something. Yeah. It, no, we. Had, the show was canceled here before I think I think the last three got aired. So in a lot of cases, I was able to either get the episode guides from the from the production company, or you know, in the case of ITC, they always had episode guidebooks themselves, and I was able to. I actually sat down and fleshed them out, made them a little longer, and I had other people who contributed, you know, uh, mm. from other sources. So we had we had a lot we got a lot of them together. We actually, unfortunately, with the bookstores waning towards the end. That was our big sales. The last guidebook that I worked on actually never got published, which was Sci-Fi Vehicles. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> and it, it was a shame because one of the things was I had, a, I had an article written by a guy who at the time owned Paul Foster's car from UFO. Oh. And uh, Phil Ray took me up to meet him in um, Blackpool. And we got to ride in the car. We took some pictures in it. It was oh, those oh you lucky it was thing. Such a, it was such a difficult car to get in and out of. I don't know how the actors did it because it's so low to the ground. It was worth and, the photo shoot. Yeah, no, the photo <laughs> shoot looked, looked great. We took it to uh, like a park and, and took some photos, which I still have. He put in hydraulic rams, so the doors actually really did open by themselves. But as a result, you, you, the only way you can get into the back seat was to crawl over the center console. <laughs> And the back seat's really a suggestion anyway. Nobody could really sit in those back seats. And that was going to be like the highlight of the book was the story about the car. And unfortunately, it never mm -hmm. happened. I mean, I still have most of the uh, yes. text here and, and some of the photos. I went out to um, space models at the time when I was in England, too. And we had photos of the skydiver model from them and some of the other models they worked on, which after the book got canceled, I returned all the originals because they were all borrowed copies. It's where the Eagle was made originally, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, between space models and master models, they did a lot of the, the primary models for the Anderson shows and uh, they were quite proud of it. Uh, Back then, when you used to go to a travel agency and you saw these beautiful models of the Concorde or Boeing 747, they did all those. They did the mass produce. They were doing, at the time I was visiting their, their shop in Slough, they were doing trains for British Rail. And they had tons of these foam core models lined up that they were painting. Well, you know, that, that making of Space 1999 book actually has a really good behind-the-scenes photo of Brian shooting one of the 44-inch Eagles. I think it was Eagle 3 from um, New Adam, New Eve. Mm -hmm. That was my original inspiration of one of these days, I'm going to get me a 44. And then Andrew Frampton uh, so graciously <laughs> let me hold the original Eagle 2 yeah. in, in the Alpha 2014 convention. And then I just catapulted that whole... And then I ended up, now I have three. They are, they are heavy suckers, the originals. I mean, the um, yes. uh, Phil had me, let me hold Eagle One. Yes, and... that, that photo right there. Yeah, the bottom right there. Yes, yes. yes I'm yes. holding up a photo, dear listener, of um, where they're and, photographing. And that, that, the... that just inspired me. It's like, man, I got to have me one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that Making of Space 1999 book, I, I certainly enjoyed reading it. And uh, But I always thought, oh, why haven't they released this in the UK? This is the place where the series really needs to be promoted. And they just yeah. let it die here in the it, UK. It, it really was a shock, the, the way it was treated in the UK. But then after reading a Andrew Pixley's wonderful book on UFO that came with the network Blu-ray set, you find that most of the, I mean, UFO got treated really badly by a lot of the stations. And I think that was just because of the way the, the networks were set up at the time with all these regional networks. Right, it wasn't, yes. uh, I mean, in the UK, it was like the shows were syndicated like they were in the United States. That's exactly what it was. It was a, a franchise operation for ITV. There was network shared times in peak hours but out of hours content was bought to fill time slots regionally and and mm. a lot of these programs were bought and yeah. as fans would like to say oh yes i'd love to see space 1999 in the evening going out across the whole country at the same time it would have to be for example atv showing it and then Yorkshire Television or London Television saying, well, we want to take it too. We'll take a feed of your output and we'll put it out in the same time. But these regional companies had their own ideas of what they wanted to put in those peak hours. Right. Well, that's that's what happened here for 1999 in the syndicated market. In some places, it was such a strong show that they cancelled actual network feeds to run it. Uh, they would run at eight o'clock, say on a Tuesday night, because the network show wasn't doing anything in their area and, and more people watched it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Huge, huge success, at least for the first season uh, right. doing that. Right. More so than here. Like Definitely more so than here, because yeah. uh, I believe it was the first 13 or 15 weeks they were looking at in in the London area. It went out on a Saturday evening about 10 to 6 but in the first 13, 15 weeks, it didn't get into the top 20 ratings. And that can obviously spell death for a show, especially if it's a bought-in project, if they think people right. are not watching it. BBC put Doctor Who on opposite, which had a following all of its own anyway right. and was very right. popular. Yeah. And then Space 1999 ended up being a Saturday morning programme. 11.30 was the slot. And when Year oh, wow. 2 premiered, that was the premiere time slot. 11.30 on a Saturday morning. That's why That's why at the beginning UFO was such a, such a success here because it was, at the time they had what's called the prime time access rule here where the local stations would get the hour before prime time at eight back to themselves and they started to sell programs. And in the case of the CBS network, the stations that they actually owned and controlled decided we're going to buy this show, put it in at seven o'clock on Sunday night right before all in the family which at the time was their mm -hmm. number one show and back then saturday night was the big tv night mm -hmm. not like it is now and it worked really well to us ufo's advantage as a lead-in that's why it did so well that it spurred them to start thinking of ufo series too in other areas it ran at different times because the local stations would run it wherever they could stick it in mm. we had thunderbirds rerun a renaissance occurred in 1991 where bbc2 bought thunderbirds to show again and of course bbc2 is a national station across the whole of the uk and we had this phenomenal right. reaction this phenomenal re renaissance really of uh yeah. 
of Thunderbirds. Matchbox, and... Matchbox jumped on that whole bandwagon yeah. and decided to put out a whole slew of toys. Right, the Matchbox toys, the, uh, uh, there were the magazines. Uh, I, I was coming, I came to visit uh, Martin Bauer and his wife around that time and I'm waiting at, I forget what train station I was at, for the train and I see this little girl walking around with a Thunderbirds backpack and I thought, that's just phenomenal. That little kid's her age. I mean, she had, couldn't have been more five or six that they're into this show that we grew up on when we were her age. The biggest toy, 1991, here in the UK, Tracy Island. And of course, they sold out. They sold out. There was this big news feature on the television of how no one could get their hands on a Tracy Island. Didn't one of the kids shows... That's right, yes. They had to build your own... Blue Just Peter. Yeah, yeah. Blue Peter, build your own out of toilet rolls. Right, 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 right. right. You can't buy it, so let's build your own. <laughs> yeah, Japan even uh, had a couple of uh, re- 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 resurgence of uh, Thunderbirds, uh, and I think the early 90s was uh, based on one of those. So do the shows still get played in the U.S. now? Ooh, uh, um... uh, Comet TV and Tubi. Uh, as well as Amazon Prime. Well, the streaming services all have it. I mean, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, just about all the shows are on 2B, except for UFO, which is on FilmRise. But Space Precinct, Hawks are there, all the way back to Supercar. Any of the, show, the, the only shows that don't get Secret Service hasn't shown up, even though it actually got released on DVD here first before it got released in England, which surprised a lot of people. And most people didn't see Joe 90 except for the SST mm. compilation until A&E released that here as well. That was never released in this country. It would have been um, the way people digest visual media now is very different, isn't it, to back in, in those days. So, much so. it's people want yeah. watching when they want to watch rather than when it's broadcast. I'm right. You sit and admit, watch you know, like episodes that. for a couple of hours instead of watching one a week. Waiting oh, with weird. bated breath for that next episode to come up. Exciting, though. I miss those days, I have to say. So looking ahead, merchandise items that you'd like to see released that we haven't seen envisaged yet, haven't come to fruition. David, you've said the RCA Space 1999 soundtrack. You'd like to see that get a re-release. That's definitely a top of my wish list. I mean, I know um, Gordon and uh, some of our other friends are still waiting for uh, some more kits and uh, more 1612 stuff. I mean, I'm actually kind of excited about these little 1612 eagles that they're planning to release because I have a storage space issue. So I haven't really been able to collect as much as I would like. Yeah, I kind of got into that department too, where, uh, you know, I bought a smaller house trying to get away from the bigger one. And as you can see with some of my original artwork, I'm kind of cramming it all over the place now. And, you know, my wife it's, says, well, I see your office threw up Space 1999. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's a question for both of you. Have yes. you both discarded all your VHS tapes? A lot of people have done this. Great, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They take up so much but, room. But I do have the original, I have two copies of the original promo poster of the J2 uh, four-volumes uh, yeah. uh, edition from 1992-91. I mean, I have I have all the VHS releases of uh, the the SST movies, of course, since I was involved now, with them. That's that's the only reason I keep them. Yeah, but the, but I got to tell you, Roz, the, the the one thing that I really really liked was the um, the British VHS covers. So I yes. got high, I, I ended up buying a whole collection of them off of eBay a while ago, 
scanned them all in and then provided them to Martin Wiley on the, of the you mean 1999 like, like catacombs. These ones. No, no, no. These were the single episode, uncut episode editions uh, from the UK. Right. Uh, that you guys had these amazing covers. The, they're they're like montages, really. Yeah. Not in any kind of really good order or anything like that. And I think that was based on um, licensing because of the SST movies were still being released yes. on VHS. I love those. Those are amazing to collect. Yeah, it was a lot of lot of lot of uh, releases had Steve Kite artwork, which was phenomenal. He's yeah brilliant. He did he did the cover for one of the 99 conventions that I did the booklet for, which oh was the 1982 great. booklet, amazing, yeah. very classic stuff yeah. right there. 82 Springfield convention, yeah, yep, yes, and you've got some Graham uh, Bleefman yeah, with... artwork in this new UFO annual now from Fanderson. Oh, I've seen some pictures of it. I haven't seen the actual one yet. Yeah. Uh, I shared I shared that uh, that upcoming annual on the UFO page, which, by the way, I have the most numbers to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I help out as best I can, and yeah. if if you guys, you know, I, I, you know, there's no, if you guys need any help or want to push some sort of uh, promotional type things, I, I'm more than happy to do it for Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, UFO ninety nine. Gordon, where can we find you online? Gordon Maraguchi. <laughs> I'm on Facebook. I'll send you his email and his, his other links. Yeah, that'll work. Well, yeah. it's been absolutely fun chatting with you guys here. We must oh, do it again on another yeah. Fanderson yeah. podcast. Sure. I, I, think I think I've learned a lot about the merchandise on the podcast today i never managed to collect a lot of it at the time i think i live in too small a property now to fit it all in gosh that's my problem too yeah yeah well there's there's still a lot of stuff being thought of and produced you know for both ufo and 1999 through 1612 i can shoot you the uh, the link to that so you could actually see what's coming up you know the stun gun comlock set is coming out more episodic 12 inch diecast eagles are coming Their out figures is action figures big big uh big chief is putting out the Koenig figure sooner or later. I heard it's delayed again. I think again. my other half would have a fit if I ordered all, all this stuff. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, Powie's has still got a bunch of Omnibus year ones still available. Uh, if you wanted to order one of those massively huge um, Super Duper, we, and we've been waiting, what, 14 or 16 years for this uh, ver since volume the, one since version. they did volume two, yeah. Yeah, back in the mid-2000s. And then, um, oh, yeah, of course, round two with their model kits. I mean, they put out pretty close to 20 products since 2013 of 1999 stuff. And now we, we're, we're, you know, enjoying the, 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 the newly released Lab Pod 22-inch oh. Eagle kit. You know, I mean, it's, it's just bonkers. And they, they constantly sell out. Yeah. 1612 constantly sells out their limited runs all the time. Right. It's and they're well-designed compared to the old toys, which all had little things to... Yeah, work well, around. Retro is cool. Retro is cool. People are buying this stuff, so yeah. I, I love it. There's sixteen twelves putting out uh, what the um, uh, in product enterprise interceptor in the original dinky colors. Yes, they are. They, they they so they started a retro line. They they did the eagle for for both the uh, freighter and the transporter. Now they're going to be doing the uh, UFO version, uh, and they just released some promo photos of the original bubble top box of dinky. It's really really fun fun to see. I think you're going to really appreciate it. Fascinating. Well, time's against us, guys. I've got to say a big thank you. David Hirsch, your former uh, co-editor of um, Starlog magazine, also Gordon Moriguchi. Uh, we'll look for you online. You're a collector and a fan. It's been really, really lovely talking to you today on this Fanderson podcast. Wonderful talking to you again, Roz. 
Very honored to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. David and Gordon there proving they really know their stuff when it comes to merchandise. It's Roz here with the Fanderson podcast and it's special guest time now. If you're a British television viewer, you may remember the BBC comedy series Allo Allo, if you're of a certain age, set in wartime in a cafe in France and featuring a rather mad bunch of people. Uh, one of those was played by Vicky Michelle, who I got to speak to very, very recently. Before she was ever in Allo Allo, she appeared in one of Gerry Anderson's finest television series, Space 1999. And when I did get to uh, chat with Vicky, I reminded her of that little fact. Reflecting on your career, apart from LOLO, which is probably what you're best remembered for, I can see that you were in my favourite television series looking at your resume. You were in Space 1999. Oh my God, I was. Do you know how many people love that? Space I love it. I love it. I got repeat fees the other day and I think it was like 24 pence. <laughs> 24 pence? <laughs> Yes. Okay, what do, what do you remember about that? Because it was set on the moon, wasn't it? It was. It was so long ago. And I remember we had, all had the same outfits. That's and, right. Um, and it was on a set, obviously. But I must it, have blinked and missed you in that. What, what, what scenes well, did you... you probably did blink and miss me because it wasn't a major, major part, but it was, a, you know, like a, a part not right. a walk on so um and it was so long ago Rose. i've got to tell you i can't remember yeah. that it well. says the episode <laughs> is the tabor it wasn't this piece in a solarium or something with bikinis yes, and was. that was I it i think it was actually you see you're really up on it aren't you well yeah i've got them on blu-ray so oh yeah God. i'm one of these people that watch it quite a bit actually but i must I'm have gonna bl- i'm gonna get it i'll start watching it yeah again. you'll have to yeah well you've been obviously is it still enjoyable Oh, it's great. Yes, after 40 like years. Dan's the test of time. Yeah, absolutely. I think because it was set in the future, you know, a 1970s yes, of view of the future, yeah. you know, it sort of kept it current because all the set design was wonderful. And mm-hmm. uh, the costumes, like you say, they were all like uniforms, weren't they? Which could apply yes. to something today. Yeah, so it's there, and it's a bit like Allo Allo because it was set in wartime. It doesn't date. Exactly. It, it, yeah, it a period all, piece. Period piece, absolutely. And so ends another Fanderson podcast. I do hope that you've enjoyed listening and that you'll join me again for the next one. More information can be found over at the website, fanderson.org.uk. There's details about membership and all the other club items that are available, including the magazine Fab. My thanks once again go to David Hirsch, to Gordon Moraguchi and Vicky Michelle. This is Roz Connors signing off. And in the meantime, stay safe.